Just as an unforgettable year that becomes a marker in American history begins to wind down, a group of more than 30 families start Hope Church in this soon-to-be-booming part of town. The year is 1968. Decades later, Time Magazine describes 1968 like a knife blade, the year that severed past from present. The year sees the peak of the Vietnam War, the assassinations of Dr. Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy, riots at the Democratic National Convention, assertions of black power at the Olympic Games, and feminist demonstrations at the Miss America pageant. Hair opens on Broadway. Laugh-In debuts. Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate pick up Oscars. President Lyndon Johnson speaks of a country challenged at home and abroad. His successor, Richard Nixon, that same year promises the long, dark night for America is about to end. In the closing days of the year, we see the earth in its entirety for the first time. Hope Church is close behind, signing its... No, I'm missing a page. Oh, yeah. We see the earth in its entirety. So in 1968, Tulsa County's population is around 400,000, half its current size today. This part of South Tulsa has yet to grow. The majority of the housing won't be built until the 1990s. It takes vision to see that Tulsa will indeed spread so far south. A few act on this vision. Oral Roberts completes his campus and graduates the first class in 1968. Holland Hall, just behind us, our neighbor, breaks ground in 1968 for their upper school. And Hope is very close behind, signing its charter in South Tulsa at Key Elementary. So raise your hand. Do we have anyone here who signed that charter? Nope. Good. They stayed and made sure they were safe at home. But we have some. And when Reverend Bruce Clary preaches the charter sermon on that Sunday evening back in December of 1968, I told you he titles it, Do You Know What You're Doing? From Hope's Pulpit, the year and the direction of the United States seem both promising and damning. Clary preaches, I wonder if you know what you are doing, for the time and the world is in a kind of darkness, and the mystery of the night in which you have chosen to hang out your light can be terrifying. Do you know what you are doing? Haven't you heard what they are saying? Don't you know that churches in this day and age are faltering, having become things of an outworn past, little more than musty museums, monuments to man's ignorance and superstition? The secular age has come. Have you not heard? 
And few institutions have escaped the flood, especially the church. Deja vu? Prophetic? Reverend Clary's words then describe the changing landscape of religion and church today. Now the church is 45. Do you know what you are doing While the tasks facing the group of hope pioneers in 1968 are far from clear, they have a single-minded vision and a common goal to create a Unitarian Universalist congregation in the newest part of the city. They lack land, a minister, any affiliation with our Boston headquarters. They have no budget, no bank account, nor a board of directors. What they have is a determined group of families. They have a collective will pointed in the same direction. It's like using the star Polaris to head north. Any party heading north will not reach the North Star, but they will stay together and travel a great distance together. In 1968, the church has clarity, enthusiasm, youth, and vitality. In 45 years, they indeed accomplish what they set out to do. They dream. They call Fred Lipp as their first minister. They create master plans, hire an architect, build this gorgeous, sacred, carved space. They share optimism. Over the next few decades, hope grows. It adds a preschool builds the log cabin and its deck, initiates the Religious Liberty Award dinners, holds conferences, offers scholarships, and hires a full-time director of religious education. The church starts an LBTQ program with youth services of Tulsa. And of course, the church marks the milestones of life, baby dedications, coming-of-age sermons, pilgrimages to Boston, marriages. How many of you were married in this sanctuary? Good. And, of course, memorial services. The Congregation of Hope Church touches and changes many lives. Now at 45, the church is at its next transition point. We are not unlike a middle-aged adult who has had a rich, full life poised to look toward the next stage of life. Now's the time to take stock and dream of the next half century. This is not a midlife crisis, which is a manufactured term, but a very real turning point. And so journalist Gail Sheehy calls this transition a little death, an end of one part of adulthood and the start of another. In the wisdom of our religious tradition, we accept death as natural, as part of nature's creative cycle. We're not interested in a miraculous triumph over death but how death's inevitability 
sharpens and shapes our days. This little death between a first and second adulthood is the time to reevaluate. It's time to examine and rebuild structures. The same is true for hope. It's time to chart a course for hope's second adulthood. What must die is a fear of failure, and what must be born is a readiness to dream. What must die is any outdated, unhelpful system, and what must be born is curiosity and experimentation. What must die is destructive anger. What must be born is compassion. What must die is exclusion, and what must be born is open-hearted hospitality. What must die is being comfortable and complacent, and what must be born is full-hearted working for justice. Creating a vision for the future is an ongoing process. It never stops. We don't get to do it just once or twice. Because a shared vision is transformative. It allows hope to move from the status quo toward a new reality. It creates new ways of thinking and acting. The vision must be broad enough to expand. It must be renewed continually as hope grows and accepts new challenges. Forty-five years ago, the collective wisdom of those 53 people was to create a new church dedicated to religious freedom. The dream was to gather people to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. So now the question is, as it was, do you know what you're doing? Do you know what hope can be in the next 45 years, in 2058? Do you know what ministries and programming will get you there? Dreaming requires many occasions where we can have meaningful, frank, guided conversations together. It's risky to dreams. And our conversations must be in safe and spacious places, allowing all ideas to bubble up. Listening very carefully to each other will be as important as expressing our own ideas. This work is very hard, but energizing and inspiring. It can create new vitality within the life of the church, as new ideas and possibilities fill the air. Does the vision on the back of your order of service still capture the dream of this church? Seeking truth, sharing love, within, among, beyond. It certainly may, and we We are wise to reaffirm it, revisit it. And just for fun, for comparison, let me read powerful vision statements from some other churches and organizations to see if if we're on the right track. Oxfam, their vision statement is just five words. A just world without poverty. 
Habitat for Humanity, a world where everyone has a decent place to live. First Unitarian in Oklahoma City, transforming people to transform the world. All Souls, the multiracial Unitarian Church in Washington, D.C. Their vision is build the beloved community with service and prophetic action. All Souls in Tulsa is love beyond belief. And there's a church in Memphis, not Unitarian, non-denominal Christian, and theirs is to be a place where love works. I find the shorter ones more memorable, powerful, and hopes is tight. It's a compact seven, seven words. The question is, does it pull us into the next 45 years? Does it speak directly to you? I'm tempted, you know me, to hand out cards to let everyone craft their vision for Hope Church, challenge you, keep it under 10 words. I even considered asking everyone to pull out their phones, I know you got them, text me or our board president, Claudia, with a 10-word vision statement. Or we could start a tweet at hashtag Hope Visioning. We aren't quite there yet technologically, but for now, I ask you to consider Hope's vision. Does it inspire you? If you come up with something different or you want to share it with me or Claudia, send it to us. But I also know we will create a mechanism for dreaming together to do this work in various settings. I messed around and my efforts at a vision statement for Hope sound like this. Six words. Building beloved community, repairing the world. Or three words, love made real. How about hands, hearts, and heads as one, helping all? Or love's beacon on the hill to light the world. At this little death moment, we look back gratefully at how far hope has come in four decades. Next, we look forward to the boundless possibilities of a future together. There are so many things we can do and so many directions where we can head. For me, the most compelling vision entails personal spiritual growth born out of relationships in covenant. It embodies concrete work for justice alongside others. And it entails a thoughtful, ongoing cycle of reflection, action, interpretation, reflection, action. It leads us to consider what are the most pressing issues we face as individuals, as families, as a church, as a part of a larger community. For example, we are a religious tradition that values education in a city, a state, a country, with a struggling public education system. So let's begin really educating ourselves and our neighbors about the school system. Then we will know if offering tutoring up on the hill might be valuable. 
Can we assist a school, perhaps East Central, where our director of religious education works, and they struggle? Let's join with other local churches and schools to hold our school board accountable and to support our school superintendent. Or, here's another dream. During the week, during the day, we have many empty spaces designed for children, and we have this glorious hill of nature. In the tradition of Emerson and Thoreau, could we support a program helping children become eco-literate? To cultivate emotional, social, and ecological intelligence? And you know, if we try to teach that, we'll become that ourselves. In contrast to the competitive consumerism of our times, there is a growing educational movement that is the intersection of social justice, peace, and environmental education. Or, church members working on the Green Sanctuary envision the church becoming a leader in environmental issues. They are investigating creation of a local chapter of interfaith, power, and light. The group promotes energy conservation, energy efficiency, and renewable energy. Or, or maybe I should say and, or and, this setting calls to be more fully used for spiritual retreats, for spiritual transformation. Kim Johnson's yoga twice a week in the log cabin is a fine example. As a religious tradition that welcomes the wisdom from many traditions, we are uniquely set to be an oasis in contrast to the hustle and bustle down the hill. There's been talk of a labyrinth, meditation classes, study of religious texts, not just the Bible. Could the church revive and restructure its Religious Liberty Awards to lead our dreams? Can we bring visionaries doing what we want to be doing to speak and inspire us? Can the founder of Interfaith Power and Light, the Reverend Canon Sally Bingham, come to hope? Can we invite Lauren Artris, who revived labyrinths single-handedly, revive them as a spiritual practice? How about Fritadolf Kopra? a leader in the eco-literacy movement. You get the idea. Let's dream big. The problem is not enough ideas, but too many. We will have to be disciplined and judicious in choosing what truly expresses hope's vision and supports a sustained, thoughtful evolution. We will have to say no to great ideas as a way of saying yes wholeheartedly to others. We will have to work through sticky issues of differing visions. This is really the core of our personal and collective spiritual work. What she, he says, will take us beyond the preoccupation of self. We are compelled to search for great significance in the engagement of ourselves in the world. So mindful of what lies ahead, Reverend Clary speaks from 1968 to us today. 
Here is the church, in the openness, in the giving, in the revealing of the self for others. Now that is what you're getting into. Perhaps you will have to bury your souls to each other in this process of becoming a church. You will have to forgive. You will have to deny yourself to accept another in this kind of community you build. You will together suffer grief and disappointment. Maybe even together or separately, driven to the edge of despair. Yours will be long-suffering. You will find endurance, a necessity, and patience. You will have to forget about your time and give it to this enterprise. Your energy will not be totally yours, but will be absorbed by the growing energy of the church. You will have to sacrifice and learn and build, tear down and build up again. But you know that. Many of you have been through this soul-losing and soul-finding experience before. You people know that the church you begin will never be finished so long as the world cries in anguish or shouts with joy or sits by the waters in defeat or in the valley of death in grief. May it be so. May it be so.